From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. I'm Dylan Matthews. I write for Vox about ways to do good in the world, and today I'm sitting in for Sean Ailing. When I was in seventh grade, our social studies class had us make a poster describing a serious problem in the world. Most people chose poverty or hunger or HIV AIDS, things like that. One friend of mine chose the philosophy of Peter Singer. At the time, I didn't know Singer was a big time professor of bioethics at Princeton and perhaps the most famous living philosopher in the world. I didn't know about any philosophers. I just saw that this 12-year-old put together a poster describing the most dangerous man in the world with ideas about abortion and infanticide that pose threats to human life as we know it. At age 12, like many 12-year-old boys, I was kind of a dick. So naturally, I responded to this poster by going to my nearest bookstore, picking up Singer's book, Writings on an Ethical Life, and reading it performatively in front of my friend as often as possible. To my great surprise, I found the book pretty compelling. I stopped eating meat because of Singer's arguments against factory farming. I was moved by his argument that people in rich countries like the U.S. have a moral duty to donate to poorer countries to prevent needless death. I was 12 and had no money, but I started donating once I had money. I wound up studying philosophy in college and writing about these issues as a journalist in no small part thanks to Peter Singer. And his ideas are no less controversial now than they were back in 2002 when I was trolling my buddy. I'm Dylan Matthews, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Peter Singer. He helped popularize utilitarianism as a moral theory, one he vigorously defends and uses to argue for things like veganism and animal protection, abortion rights, and euthanasia. His 1975 book, Animal Liberation, has been credited as the start of the modern animal rights movement. He just released a heavily revised new edition titled Animal Liberation Now. It covers the dramatic expansion of factory farming since the book was first published, but also the growth in animal activism, plant-based foods, and resistance to speciesism, a term he coined in analogy to racism and sexism. I wanted to talk to Singer about this book and its legacy, but I didn't just want to talk about animals. I was curious about Singer's writing on euthanasia, specifically of disabled infants which has led to furious protests from disability rights activists around the world. And I wanted to ask him about effective altruism, the movement he helped start that attempts to use reason and evidence to do as much good as possible, but had a massive scandal in 2022 when its most prominent advocate, Sam Bankman-Fried, was indicted for extensive financial fraud. Basically, I wanted to have a wide-ranging conversation with one of the world's most influential, creative, and sometimes disturbing thinkers. Peter Singer, welcome to the Gray Area. Thank you, Dylan. I'm really pleased to be in the Gray Area. So the occasion for our, our conversation today is this new edition of your book, Animal Liberation, uh, which derived from an essay you wrote 50 years ago in the New York Review of Books, I wanted to talk a little bit about what 
the animal movement was like then, since you've seen it go through some pretty apocal changes. When you were starting to write about these issues, what was sort of the state of, of the animal movement in the UK and Australia and in the countries that you were you were living in and visiting? I don't think you could say that there was an animal movement uh, in 1975. What you could say was that there were some very traditional and conservative anti-cruelty organizations in countries like Australia and the United Kingdom. There was the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. The UK one was so conservative that it had fox hunters on its council, on its governing body. That shows how broad their concern for animals was. Uh, it was obviously not interested in foxes, but it was also not interested in chickens or cows or pigs, despite the fact that factory farming was already in existence and that um, these animals had been brought indoors in horrible conditions. Uh, the RSPCA was not had not opposed it. In addition, there were a couple of, again, rather traditional anti-vivisection societies, which also mostly promoted the idea that dogs and cats were being used in experiments, although, of course, the vast majority of animals used in experiments are, are rats and mice, not dogs and cats. But it was pretty moribund, I would have to say. You know, just around that time, there was a little bit of more radical movement emerging. There was something called the Hunt Saboteurs Association, HSA, and they went out and sabotaged hunts. And that was, I guess, the most radical wing of the uh, animal movement then. Yeah, it was, it was striking. I was rereading the preface to the 1975 edition, and, and you say pointedly at one point, the substituting of, of rats or mice for dogs is not what I would call a victory. I'm, I'm calling for a reduction in harmful animal testing altogether. How did you get turned on to this issue at the time if it was so marginal? I got turned on uh, five years before the book came out, so in 1970, by a chance encounter with a Canadian student in philosophy. I was myself a graduate student in philosophy at Oxford, and uh, so was Richard Keshen, the Canadian I mentioned. Um, and uh, we attended a class together. We got into some discussion. The class was about freedom, free will, and, and moral responsibility. We started discussing that after the class. Richard invited me to come and have lunch with him at his college, at Balliol College. And when we got there, there was a choice of just two main courses you could have. You could have spaghetti, which had some kind of brown sauce on top of it, or you could have a salad plate. So Richard asked whether there was any meat in the sauce on the spaghetti. And when he was told there was, he said he'd take the salad. I took the spaghetti because, you know, salad wasn't going to be substantial enough. But uh, I asked him why he'd asked that question about the meat because, it, you know, this is 1970. It was really unusual to meet a vegetarian. That's pretty odd. Why? Maybe he thought it was bad for his health. But, but no, he just said pretty straightforwardly, uh, I don't think we're justified in treating animals the way that they're treated to be turned into food for us. And, you know, that got me thinking about the whole issue, reading, researching, and eventually writing about it. I want to focus a bit on, on the word liberation. This was a particular moment in time in the 70s, right, where you had women's liberation, black liberation, gay liberation. Why did you want to sort of create an animal wing of, of that struggle? What was it about those movements that you wanted to adapt for animals? The idea behind those movements was that we have kind of a blind spot about the groups and we have an ideology that justifies us in uh, exploiting them in, in some way, using them for our own purposes. And when I say our, of course, I'm now thinking about the dominant groups. So I'm thinking about whites in the case of black liberation, men in the case of women's liberation, and straight people in the case of gay liberation. And uh, I'd come to see the way we treat animals as a kind of a parallel. You know, we have this dominant group. It happens to be our entire species. We uh, are using and exploiting, uh, you could even say enslaving, the uh, non-human animals for our purposes. And we develop this ideology, and it has all of the same sort of ramifications. So just as they're like, for the white slavers in the South, there were religious justifications that we could quote from the Bible to show that God had meant us to have slaves. And of course, they could show that, uh, you know, quote St. Paul to say women should be silent and not, not interrupt us and so on. And we have this in the, in, in the same with animals, you know. Oh, yes, we're justified in using animals because in Genesis, it says that God gave us dominion over them. 
And, you know, that was a powerful influence on Christian thought. And then, of course, we also have this idea, even going from Descartes, that they don't feel anything anyway. And although Descartes was a long time back, there was this behaviorist movement in psychology, which also said it's unscientific to attribute mental states to animals. And they would just describe the behavior of the animals that they were giving electric shocks to, not imply that this was causing them pain. So, yeah, there was a whole set of ideologies going along to justify our exploitation. And that's why I thought it's really a liberation movement in something like the same sense as these other ones. It seems like there are a few points of, of disanalogy, and obviously no analogy is perfect. But one that strikes me as particularly pointed is that you were sort of advocating on behalf of a class you're not a part of, that you're, you're advocating for farmed and tested on animals. And I think a key part of the ideology of, of some of the groups that you were forming animal liberation and model of was that the group being oppressed had to have primacy in fighting against the oppression, that, you know, Huey P. Newton would be asked if white people could join the Black Panthers, and he said, no, they could join a white panther movement if they wanted to. So how do you sort of square that circle and think about liberation in a context where you're acting on behalf of another group? Well, it, it is a point of disanalogy. You're quite right. And I wasn't suggesting that the analogy is perfect. Of course. But you can have children's liberation movements, and it's not necessarily the children who are speaking up for certainly younger children. So I think that in this situation, uh, that's what we have to do. Unfortunately, the animals are not capable of really speaking out and organizing. Of course, they may protest when they're put in small cages. They do, some of them. But... Uh, in terms of organizing a movement, yes, that's a point of difference, and uh, humans have to do it for animals. So part of the, the new book is looking back at these uh, 50 years of progress and struggle. So we've gone from this period where you're just sort of laying out the ideological principles behind an animal movement to being able to look back at some sort of concrete attempts at activism and see what worked and what didn't. How would you characterize sort of the lessons you've learned as someone who cares about this from that track record? Were there some false starts, some particularly promising actions from the vantage point of animal liberation? So, uh, lessons learned. Uh, first one is, it's harder than I thought. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I thought that there was a really clear argument against the way we were treating animals. I had never considered myself an animal lover, and yet I was appalled to learn about the details of what we do to animals in factory farms and in labs. And so I thought that there was a reasonable chance, I wasn't certain of it by any means, but I thought there was a reasonable chance that this book would, as we would say today, uh, go viral, that um, people would say, oh, this is terrible. I'm not, uh, at least I'm going to stop eating factory farm products. You know, some of them would go vegetarian, some wouldn't. And that that would spread. They would tell their friends and it would become sort of a taboo to eat something that had been an animal who had been reared in, in that way. But eating habits turned out to be more deeply entrenched. And even people who were persuaded by the argument, some of them continue to eat meat, even factory farm meat. That's still the case today. So that's one lesson. Um, it's harder and it's going to take longer. Another lesson that was learned, I think, in the 80s is that the use of violence on behalf of animals doesn't work. Um, that was a period when some people took the lessons of animal liberation to say, you know, we have this exploited group, uh, it's continuing, we're justified basically you know, using whatever means we can to stop it. And although it was a tiny group of people, there were letter bombs sent to experimenters and uh, it really backfired quite badly because it enabled our opponents to brand us as terrorists and I think the movement lost influence for a time and, and took some years to recover from that. So in terms of other things as to what works and what doesn't, I think it depends where you are. In parliamentary democracies, um, United Kingdom and the European Union, it was possible to get change, uh, and I'm not talking about the kind of change I wanted, of course, but I'm talking about significant reforms and improvements in some of the conditions for animals. Uh, it was possible to get that through conventional political channels by showing that it mattered to voters what policy you had on animals. In the United States... That hasn't been true, except in those states that have uh, the possibility of citizen-initiated referendums. And there it's worked. California is the best example. California has twice passed propositions for farm animals, including 
Proposition 12, which was just upheld by the Supreme Court. But otherwise, you have to go through trying to influence the big corporations. And that's what the movement has done in the United States, targeting corporations from McDonald's to the supermarket chains and uh, other fast food chains, getting them to improve their treatment of animals. And it's been a, a hard slog. It's made progress, but less progress than in the European Union, for example. To give one example, if you take the cages that egg-laying hens are standardly kept in, those are now banned across the United Kingdom and the European Union. They are still the majority of laying hens in the United States are kept that way, although, as I said, they're not allowed in California and I think another eight states that prohibit them. And the same is true for keeping sows and veal calves in individual crates so narrow that they can't turn around. That's illegal across the UK and the, and the EU. It's not illegal in the US and um, large numbers of sows are still kept that way. Veal calves are generally given a bit more space, although they can still be kept in individual confinement, which is stressful for them. Yeah. One other thing that's happened in the intervening period and that you cover a lot in the book is the emergence of climate change as an issue, which seems on on the surface like it should strengthen the case of people trying to end factory farming, since we know how much animal agriculture can contribute to greenhouse emissions. How has that changed the effort from your perspective? I think that awareness of climate change and of the contribution of the meat industry to climate change has led more people to become vegetarian and vegan. And that's clearly a good thing. It helps the movement. It means that there's more of a market for these products. So there's companies interested in producing products that are easy to cook, that taste like meat or kind of taste that meat eaters want. And uh, they're readily available in, in supermarkets in most cities. So that's a plus. If you really follow the implications of looking at your greenhouse gas footprint, it can have a paradoxically bad effect in terms of reducing animal suffering because it's mostly cows and sheep, ruminant animals, who produce the bulk of the greenhouse gas. So people may switch from eating beef to eating chicken or fish for that matter. And both of those, I think, would be worse for animal suffering because the animals are far smaller. So it takes more of them to feed you, more suffering for that reason. But also um, both chicken and uh, fish, when fish are reared in fish farms, are much more crowded. I would say they suffer a lot more than beef cattle suffer. So I do want people to move away from eating animals, but I don't want them to switch from, from beef to chicken or fish. Got it. Let's talk a little bit about sort of alternative proteins, clean meat or plant-based meat, which are two different things. Clean meat is sort of in vitro meat. Plant-based meat is things like Beyond and, and Impossible Burgers. I think there's been a, a really heavy investment in these by the animal movement and by sort of funders in the animal movement as a way to, to move people away from meat. How do you think that's going? How optimistic are you about that strategy as a way of attacking factory farming? You know, I'm, I'm hopeful that these products will develop and that they will eventually be competitive with meat from animals in price. I think that's important. The plant-based products, of course, are already out there, but generally they're more expensive than animal products. Cultured meat or cellular meat exists in Singapore. It's on sale through restaurants rather than supermarkets because it's more expensive. And in the restaurant, the price difference doesn't really matter that much. I'm hoping that that will come down in price. I was also encouraged by the news that uh, the Israeli food authorities have given approval to a dairy product made from precision fermentation uh, using yeasts and uh, have said that this is identical in nutritional content to milk from cows. And I think this is actually a huge breakthrough because in principle, it could be cheaper than milk from cows. And uh, the dairy industry is not only a cruel industry because the cows have to be made pregnant every year and then the calves have to be taken away from them, which is painful for both mother and calf. It also produces a lot of greenhouse gases because cows are ruminant animals. So I think this has the potential to do to the dairy industry what digital cameras did for Kodak. And I think that would be a very good thing. Peter Singer has stepped in as a defender of animal rights, but he's also an outspoken defender of euthanasia. 
in particular euthanasia of infants with disabilities. And this has drawn in quite a bit of controversy. We'll get into it after a quick break. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. Hey, it's Dylan. Uh, before we jump back into my conversation with Peter Singer, I just wanted to let you know that this next section is all about Singer's view that it's morally acceptable in some cases to euthanize infants born with severe disabilities. Wherever he goes, Peter Singer is dogged by these questions. Disability activists protest him routinely when he gives speeches at universities and conferences. So I wanted to challenge him on this topic, since it is a part of his legacy, it's a part of what he stands for, and it's a part of how people think about him. If you don't want to hear him make that argument or me try to poke holes in it, the next segment is probably not for you. Check back in in about 20 minutes or so. I wanted to talk about some of your other work. You've written a lot of classic books over, over your career, and I've been revisiting some of them. My sense is that some of your work on sort of issues of life and death and life and death as they interact with disability came out partially of, of your work on, on animals and trying to think about what it is that makes life for humans and animals valuable or, or worth advancing. Could you say a little bit about that and sort of how that research project of yours came about? Yes, um, that's an acute observation. Uh, it's partly correct. Okay. The aspect in which it's not correct is that when I was a student at the University of Melbourne, which is obviously before I went to do my graduate work at Oxford and therefore before I started thinking about animals, I was active in the abortion law reform movement. At the time, I was a member of the committee of an organization that was seeking to change the law on abortion. And abortion was regarded as illegal in, in Victoria at that time. I mean, it had been always illegal, but the law had not been enforced. Then we had a Roman Catholic appointed head of the homicide squad in the Victorian police, the state where I was living. Um, and he started prosecuting doctors who were doing abortions. And that's what sparked the movement. And I was clear that abortion should be legal. I wrote articles for the student newspaper about it. So I was involved in that aspect of the issue about life and death. And I think if you'd asked me at that time, I'm pretty sure I would have also supported voluntary euthanasia or, or physician-assisted dying, but that was not such a big issue. But what is correct about what you said was that when I started thinking about the ethics of how we treat animals, 
I started asking questions about, well, is it only inflicting suffering on animals that is bad, preventing them from having enjoyable lives, or is it the fact that we kill them? And that led me to think, well, what is it that makes killing wrong? And because I'm, I'm not religious, I was you know, not going to say because we have an immortal soul or because God forbids it. And I started thinking, well, maybe it's something to do with our intellect, the fact that we want to plan for the future and that um, if we're killed, we can't. So I thought about that and that made me think, well, okay, so maybe the humane killing of a non-human animal is not as bad as the humane killing of a normal human being. Um, and I still think that. But suppose that you have a human who lacks the cognitive capacities that enable normal humans to think about their future. And of course, that could be an infant. None of us were born with those capacities. Or it could be someone with a uh, you know, severe intellectual disability that was uh, not treatable. And for that matter, also, it could be somebody who didn't really have much of a future to look forward to because they were terminally ill and they were expecting to die within uh, weeks or months and their quality of life had fallen to a level where they didn't think it was worth going on. So um, it got me thinking about all of those cases. And I think the first article that I wrote on this was a little article called Unsanctifying Human Life. And that was where I sort of put forward the idea that really the sense that it's always wrong to kill an innocent human being, but not wrong to kill a non-human animal is just a form of speciesism. It's a, just the same old prejudice that says animals don't have the moral status that humans do. And that's a matter of whether you are of the species homo sapien or not, not a matter of what cognitive capacities you have. As I imagine listeners are putting together, if they were not familiar with these arguments of yours already, was immensely controversial, and, and you've faced protests throughout your career. And it's been an interesting thing for me personally that I, um, I admire your work a great deal. It has changed my life in ways that we, we I think, will come to toward the end of this conversation. But, but I also have friends in the disability rights movement who view your work as incredibly dangerous and as a threat to them. I'm curious what you have made of that pushback and if there are points where you've changed your mind. My sense is that you haven't changed your mind on the overall framework, but if there are sort of, say, empirical questions about what life is like for specific kinds of disabled people or just sort of reflections you had about the experience of this issue throughout your life. Yeah, let me just go back first to something that you said, that this has been controversial throughout my career. That's actually not correct. Oh. I wrote the article I mentioned in... I think it was published in 1976, probably, around then. And I wrote uh, Practical Ethics, the first edition, in 1979. And it had all of these views about life, including discussions about people with profound intellectual disability. There was no controversy for 10 years. The controversy really began when I was invited to speak in Germany in 1989. And um, Germans, of course, are very sensitive about the idea of euthanasia because the Nazis had a so-called euthanasia program, it was not a euthanasia program at all in the interest of those who were wanting to die. It was getting rid of people who the Nazis regarded as kind of a, a blot on the Aryan folk. But you can understand that Germans were sensitive about the suggestion that anyone um, might be justifiably killed because of, um, let's say, a decision of parents that the disabilities that the infant had were so severe that they thought it was better the infant should not live. So that's when it became controversial. And I was somewhat surprised by that. And actually, for a while, it was mostly controversial still only in, in Germany and German-speaking countries. And it took even longer to become controversial uh, in English-speaking countries because there wasn't a militant disability movement at that time. But it, it grew. And, you know, I'm that's fine. So it became controversial only, I would say, in the 1990s. Now, uh, you then asked, you know, how has that affected me? Has it changed my views? And I think you're right to say that in terms of the underlying ethical arguments, that's not changed. I still think that there are cases where parents should have the option of ending the life of their severely disabled infant. And let me just say a couple of things why I think that's not as radical as, as some people might think. It's standard practice in neonatal intensive care units pretty much everywhere that if a child is born with a very severe disability, 
doctors will ask parents whether they want to put the child on life support or not, or if the child is on life support when the disability is discovered, whether they wish to remove life support. And if you have, um, let's say, a premature infant who's had a massive brain bleeding, a hemorrhage in the brain, which does happen with very premature infants, and the doctors say, would you like to take your child off life support? You know, this is the prognosis. Your child will, for example, never be able to live independently, will never be able to recognize you, the child's mother or father, will basically be needing complete care. Would you like to take this child off life support? That's a decision to say, would you like the child to die? There's, there's no other way of glossing that. Would it be better if the child died? Better for the child, better for you and your family, whatever. And that happens all the time. And parents very frequently say yes, and uh, the child dies. So the difference between what I'm suggesting and what is happening is that if the child is not on life support when the disability is discovered, the brain hemorrhage or whatever it might be, and therefore you can't end the child's life by taking the child off life support, parents should still have the option of saying, we think that it's better that the child should not live. And doctors should be able to make sure that that happens, to give the child a, a drug so that the child dies uh, without suffering. So it's a fairly narrow difference in a way between what's going on now, um, which of course maybe some militant disability groups will disagree with. Maybe they'll say doctors should not do that. Or maybe some you know, pro-life people will say doctors should continue to give life support no matter how severe the disability is for as long as the child needs it. But as I say, that's, that's not what's actually happening. So I think that my view is right there. I continue to think that it's okay for doctors to offer to take the child off life support, and it's okay for parents to accept that offer. And I continue to think there's no real ethical difference between bringing about a child's death by turning off life support than by giving the child a lethal injection. So I'm not sure which of those elements people think I should change, but I don't think that I should change any of them. What is true is that on the range of disabilities that I think parents may properly say, we want our child to live, that kind of life is not going to be a burden for the child and we'll be able to cope with it. Um, I've, I've broadened my views somewhat on that. So yes, I've talked to people in the disability community and I accept that there are all kinds of worthwhile lives. And I also accept another thing that they've said to me. I, I used to say, the parents should discuss it with the doctors. You know, if there's some uncertainty about the condition, parents should discuss it with the doctors and uh, agree on it. I now say parents should discuss it with the doctors and with representatives of people who have the disability that their child has. Now, depending on the nature of the disability, that may be people with the disability themselves who've grown up and, and lived that life, or it may be the parents who are living with a child. But I certainly accept the point that doctors themselves may have a prejudice against people with disabilities and that therefore it's good to get a wider range of advice. So I want to nail down the specifics of the argument because I think the specifics are important. And, and I think one particular question I had about that was why this applies to, to infants with certain disabilities and not to all infants. That if some of this is about being able to make plans that can be frustrated, um, of having a sense of your life and its scope, um, I didn't have that as an infant. I think most of us don't. And so what makes this not a general argument for the permissibility of euthanasia for very young infants across the board? Well, of course, you're right. Um, uh, infants generally don't have this. And I've, I've had my own children, and um, I'm sure that they did not have any <laughs> sense of their future in the first month or few months of their lives. The, the difference is really, I think, that at least in most societies now, if you have healthy infants who are parents, or sometimes there's only the mother around, do not feel that they can have, there are other couples who would like to adopt those children. And since the children have every prospect of a positive future, I think it's better that that should happen. It's better for the couple who may be childless and are looking out for a child that they can love and care for, and it's good for the child. So it's really just that. I mean, if there are other circumstances in which a child is born and parents feel it's going to be really bad for us, we don't want this child, and 
there's nobody else who's willing to look after the child, I suppose the argument goes through. Um, I think that would be unusual. Um, maybe I would be sort of emotionally troubled by it more than I am about infants with severe disabilities, but um, I couldn't really say that they're doing something wrong. In preparing for this conversation, I, I went back and reread a piece by your late friend and uh, argumentative antagonist, Harry McBride Johnson, uh, who wrote a, a piece about your correspondence. And she was a lawyer, not a philosopher, and, and is not laying out an argument and, and propositions the way that, that a philosopher would. But I think part of what I take her to be saying is that there's a kind of speech harm in making these kinds of arguments about disabled people, that you may be making an argument about a particular case in the NICU of, of some hospital with parents facing a brutal situation. But when you're making that argument, adult disabled people or adolescent disabled people who did live with similar disabilities are hearing it, and there's something harmful to their status equals in society about that. And you're involved with the Journal of Controversial Ideas. You're a big defender of academic freedom. But part of what's interesting about this argument to me is that it, it strikes me as somewhat utilitarian, that it's about consequences, suggesting that we should judge actions by their consequences as opposed to their intent or or even their truth value. Um, I'm curious what you make of that idea, that there are argumentative paths you don't want to go down because of their potential to hurt groups of people. I do consider the consequences of our actions as the way to determine which actions are right or wrong. And if I were persuaded that the harms are really so serious that it is better not to talk about these issues, then I wouldn't talk about them. But I haven't been persuaded by that. And of course, we have to balance it against the consequences of parents thinking about the issue in a way that doesn't leave them you know, tortured with guilt for making what many people would think of as a morally wrong decision. And I also think, you know, I'm, I'm interested in social reform. Uh, I think, for example, switching to uh, voluntary euthanasia or, or physician-assisted dying, that movement has made very significant progress in the last 40 years and I think has greatly reduced the amount of unnecessary suffering. But some people with disabilities are uh, opposed to that as well because they think pressure will be put on people with disabilities to end their lives. You know, again, that would be a serious consideration if there were clear evidence that that's the case. But um, I really haven't seen the evidence, you know, either about the speech harms that you're referring to or about pressure on people with disabilities to end their lives. So I continue to advocate for physician-assisted dying but to some extent, you're right that uh, in general, I think that freedom of thought and expression is really important. And I think that people have become perhaps overly sensitive in the last uh, couple of decades about speech harm. I, uh, I think uh, it's often said, but rarely backed up with, with firm evidence about how serious this is. So that's why I haven't stopped talking about these issues. Maybe one way to get at this is, what's the best argument you have you feel like you've heard from some of your critics from the disability world? Is there a specific critique that you thought was particularly strong and not made in bad faith or, or maybe led you to, to reconsider some premises? Um, I certainly don't think people in the disability movement are in, in bad faith. I think they believe what they're saying. Uh, then the, the best argument for that is a kind of slippery slope argument that um, once we depart from the inviolability of human life, we'll end up where the Nazis took us. And, and that's what some of the Germans were saying, right? And that's why they do talk about inviolability of human life in a uh, absolute term. And it is actually the first clause in their uh, constitution or their basic law, as it's called, um, that uh, human life is inviolable. So... Um, I don't think the slippery slope argument is really right. And in fact, I'm, I'm more convinced of that now than I was 40 years ago, because 40 years ago, we didn't have legal assisted dying or voluntary euthanasia anywhere in the world. Today, we've had it for several decades in some countries or, or in states like Oregon and Washington in the US, and I haven't seen evidence of a slippery slope. Yeah. So um, I, I don't think it's a good argument, but that would be the most consistent argument that people would, would make. I'll say that the slope seems to have slipped 
a little bit on some things, in my view, and I'm curious to see how you interpret this, but you, you could imagine very narrow voluntary euthanasia laws that are for people who've been diagnosed with, with a terminal condition, if you have stage four cancer, say. The laws in places like the Netherlands and Belgium and, and more recently Canada go well beyond that and include things like uh, mental health. And there's something that seems qualitatively different to me about someone going to a doctor with depression and seeking euthanasia than someone with a terminal disease, in part because it sort of confuses what autonomy means to me in a way that it requires informed and conscious consent. And if you're in the depths of depression, you sort of, by definition, aren't able to reason about your own life. So I'm, I'm curious how you think about how those laws have evolved. Has the way that they've evolved concerned you? Well, uh, let me challenge what you just said. Sure. Suppose that you've had depression for 20 years. You've been to doctors to try many different ways of treating it. And you have judged that your life has been miserable for all those 20 years and that there is no chance that your depression is going to be cured. You really think you can't reason about your future and give autonomous consent to having your life ended? I think buying all the premises of that argument, I can conceive of a situation where that's true. I can say in my own life, in my own experience with depression, um, I often find myself thinking that I'm thinking very rationally and carefully about how life is worthless and and then I change my antidepressant mix, and suddenly I'm thinking rationally in a very different way. <laughs> and so I, um, I worry about someone in a situation like that going to a doctor and getting approved for euthanasia when there really were other options. Yeah, um, I'm very glad that your depression is one that can be improved by changing your antidepressant mix. I am too. That's fortunate for you and, and for all of us who benefit from your work. But um, my understanding of the extent to which the slope has slipped in Belgium or the Netherlands or Canada is not that it would extend to somebody who is temporarily in a depression but is treatable. The only cases where doctors have helped people to die when they've had depression have been long-standing cases that have not changed with the result of a whole variety of treatments. So um, that's why I'm not so troubled by it. The other cases that some people say are a slippery slope, are, there's discussion now in the Netherlands, and there may have been a small number of cases of really elderly people who say they're tired of life. They're not depressed particularly, um, but they just think that life has become a burden and it doesn't have much hope of improving given that they're continuing to age. And I think that that should be a, a choice that people can make. Um, it does, if you like, slip a little further down the slope, but um, I don't think we should refuse uh, that kind of ending to people who are really old and have you know, held this view, and it's not just a temporary whim, they've held it for some time. So, yeah, I'm prepared to accept some increases beyond the initial case that you started with, where someone has stage four cancer and they know they're going to die. Those are the, the easiest cases for me. And, and there are some, well, this is the gray area, right? So there are some gray areas uh, <laughs> that we need to decide on here. And obviously, those choices will be difficult and people will differ as to where exactly they should draw the line. Peter Singer makes these arguments, which a lot of people find morally repulsive. But he also makes arguments that have inspired millions of people to give more to charity, myself included. That's what I'll ask about after the break. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seat of all your disappointments? A wasteland of unmatched, sandpaper-rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring, you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features, like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts, like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, 
or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bompas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The essay of yours that had the biggest effect on my life, which I read when I was 13, was called Famine, Affluence, and Morality. And that paper sort of started what I think it was sort of a third segment of your work alongside animals and human life and death. Can you sort of explain for listeners who might not have read Famine, Affluence, and Morality what your basic argument was and, and where, where that came from? Uh, yes, certainly. Let me set some background to the writing of that article. I was a graduate student in Oxford when I started working on it. And there was a crisis that was unfolding in what is now Bangladesh, uh, but was then East Pakistan. Nine million people fled across the border to seek refuge in India. And India was overwhelmed with that number of people, appealed for help from uh, more affluent nations for support, but uh, relatively little help was forthcoming. And there I was in Oxford. I was living on a graduate scholarship, not a lot of money. My wife had recently been appointed as a high school teacher. So, you know, we didn't have a lot, but we were comfortable enough. And here were these 9 million people, you know, with hardly any sanitation, questions about whether they were getting enough food, so on. So I thought, yeah, we should be doing something to help them. But, you know, everybody should be doing something to help them, all of the people in England who are better off than we are. And so I started thinking about the principles for that. And obviously, one response people made was, well, this is not our responsibility. We had nothing to do with the fact that these people became refugees. We're sorry about it, but why should we help? So to counter that, I asked my readers to imagine that they're walking past a shallow pond and they see that a small child has fallen into the pond and is in danger of drowning. Uh, it's not their child. They've never seen the child before. They expect that there'd be parents or a babysitter around, but there doesn't seem to be. They can easily rescue the child, and it's not a deep pond. There's no risk to them, but they will ruin the nice clothes that they put on because they're going somewhere special. So um, I think everybody would say, considering that, you must jump into the pond. If you don't jump into the pond and save the child, you're a really horrible person. You've really done something very wrong. But of course, you're not responsible for the child, and help does come at some cost to you. So if that's the case for a child in front of you, why isn't it the case for people who are further away, who you can't see or can't identify, but you know that you can help them? You know that you can donate to Oxfam or some other organization, and that will help them and that will save lives. So essentially, the argument was that we do have an obligation to help people in need if we can do so at a low cost to us. We're not sacrificing anything morally significant or taking any risks with our life. And uh, it will make a, a really big difference to them. Uh, and that, of course, then raised the question, well, how far do you go? Where do you, how much do you give? And 
I had sort of two possible answers to that. The strong version was you ought to keep giving until the line at which if you give more, you'll have made yourself worse off and you'll have harmed yourself as much as you've benefited someone else. That's a very demanding ethic, obviously. So I also suggested a weak version, which said we ought to give as long as we're not making a significant moral sacrifice. And that too, you know, is less demanding than the strong version, but still much more demanding than our general standards of what we ought to give to people in need. I was suggesting that the way most of us are living is not really in accordance with how we ought to be living, given that there are people in extreme poverty in the world, and we are spending money on luxuries and trivial items that really don't make any significant difference to our lives. I did not have a lot of disposable income as a 13-year-old, but as as soon as I did have disposable income, I started trying to donate some share of it. I've, I've committed to 10% to causes affecting global poverty. I took a pledge from a group called Giving What We Can to, to donate 10%. And Giving What We Can kind of marked the beginning of this movement that's come to be known as effective altruism. I think taking that idea that we're, we're obligated to do more to help others and to do so using sort of reason and evidence. And you were sort of a huge inspiration for that. I think one question I've had is, is what took so long? <laughs> You wrote that essay in the early 1970s. Effective altruism came around in the early 2010s. What's your answer for why it took so long? <laughs> so it's it's not that nothing happened. Um, people did start giving and being influenced by the article. But for most of the students who actually came across the article, because it was initially published in a peer-reviewed academic journal, so not very many people read that. And I'm not sure where you got it, but it did get anthologized. It got reprinted in a lot of... Uh, collections of philosophy articles that were used as texts for classroom use. Most professors, and uh, you know, I heard um, Josh Green, who's a professor of psychology at Harvard, talking about his experience with this. The professor says, here's a really interesting article I want you to read. The premises seem strong, and the argument does seem sound in that the conclusion seems to follow from the premises. But the conclusion is absurd. It can't be that we are all doing something wrong by not giving significant amounts of our income to people in poverty. So your job is to find what's wrong with the argument. And I I think that was the attitude to the article for quite a long time. But it really did take Toby Ord, who set up uh, the organization you mentioned, Giving What We Can, and uh, Will McCaskill, who was... uh, supporting giving what we can and also writing other things about effective altruism. It took them to really get the movement going um, and to really say, this is not an article for having philosophical debates about. This is an argument for acting on. And that spread. And, And perhaps a factor here too is also the internet. There were people, various people have said to me, you know, I read your article back in the 70s or 80s or something. But I was living in, I don't know where, you know, um, small, smallish town, and everybody thought I was crazy. Nobody agreed with me. Then you get the internet, and you can start posting things about this, and, you know, people come out all over the world saying, yes, that's right, I agree with it. So I think that might have made a difference in, in why it actually became a movement. It seems to me that effective altruism, which which at this point has several billion dollars of philanthropic funds behind it, and used to have several billion more, which we can we can touch on in a second, it seems like the largest scale attempt to like do utilitarianism, to to think through what a social movement motivated by utilitarianism would look like. And I'm curious if you feel like you've learned anything about utilitarianism through that process. Um, this is a philosophy you've been pushing for your your entire career, and now it's been sort of attempting to scale. What is What has that told you about it? I think it's really good that it is scaling and that it is getting, you know, outside universities and people who read Bentham and talk about philosophy um, and people are acting on it. I'm very encouraged by that. I don't want to put it that effective altruism is just about utilitarianism. Of course. Because, you know, I want it to be broader than that. There are utilitarian aspects, you could say, of almost any ethic. If an ethic says, it's always wrong to kill an innocent human being, then it's not utilitarian, because utilitarianism will say, well, it will depend on what the consequences are. And you can imagine circumstances in which if you don't kill one innocent human being, thousands will die. And then the utilitarian will say, you should kill the innocent human being. Some 
non-utilitarian ethics will say, no, you shouldn't. But that's not going to affect their ability to be an effective altruist, right? It's pretty rare that you have to go around killing innocent human beings to do the most good you can. So they can be effective altruists for practical purposes just as much as a utilitarian. But um, yeah, it's, it's really good that effective altruism is there, that it's spreading this message, that it's doing things for people in extreme poverty, as we've just been talking about. It also does things for non-human animals because utilitarians and a lot of other people, of course, again, recognize that it's wrong to inflict suffering on non-human animals. That's good too. Um, All of that's encouraging. And I hope the movement continues to go forward and to attract uh, wide support. So the big news last year in the effective altruism world was the the crypto billionaire Sam Bankman-Fried, who was a self-professed effective altruist, funded a lot of effective altruist causes, And for transparency, I should note, in August 2022, Bankman-Fried's philanthropic family foundation called Building a Stronger Future awarded Vox's Future Perfect a grant for a 2023 reporting project. That project is now on pause. He has since uh, resigned. He, He lost all of his money and has been indicted for a variety of financial crimes. And that was a very hard period for me as someone involved in this movement and had to reckon with this guy in our midst who I had taken money from. And I think it also left me with some questions about this philosophy that I had embraced. And I've been curious for your thoughts and what your reaction was from that period. You've obviously stuck with utilitarianism and effective altruism over the last year. And and of course, you can easily be an effective altruist without being a utilitarian, but you've stuck with both of those worldviews through periods with a lot more torment than this one. You've stuck with ideas like these for 50 years. What was your reaction to SBF as someone to whom these ideas mean a great deal and and was seeing them tested in this really public way? My reaction was certainly uh, surprise and disappointment. Serious disappointment because Sam Bankman-Fried was said to have in excess of $20 billion, and that could have done an immense amount of good in a variety of ways but it didn't. Um, And although neither I nor the charity, The Life You Can Save, which I co-founded and which I'm chair of the board, received any money from Bankman-Fried, I should disclose that in September, uh, he invited me and a few other people involved in philanthropy to dinner in New York. And I went there and was hoping that he would donate to The Life You Can Save. He didn't. um, And obviously now never will. But uh, so there there was some disappointment about that as well. And there was a concern for animals too, I think, um, that he had. And his brother, Gabe, was there who also definitely had a concern for animals. So yeah, it was really disappointing. But I wouldn't say that it in any way lessened my support for either utilitarianism or for effective altruism. I believe, some people have questioned this, I believe that Sam was was genuine in being an effective altruist and having gone into earning money in order to give it away. But, uh, you know, he turned out to be a, a very fallible human being with, a, I would say, a wildly excessive tolerance of risk and that that's what led to his undoing. But I don't think it's a reason for saying that utilitarianism is wrong. It's just, it's a reason for saying utilitarianism is not always applied correctly. Well, right. we knew that before. This was just another spectacular example of it. It was certainly that. Um, I think the, the thing he said sort of before the fall that kind of haunts me, he had an interview where someone asked him, you know, you're offered a bet where there's a 51% chance that you double the earth. Suppose in this world that all that matters is the total amount of happiness in the world. You double the earth and you double the total amount of happiness and you create twice as much value in the world by this metric. So there's a 51% chance of that. And there's a 49% chance that you you wipe out the entire world. Um, In expected value terms, if you just sort of multiply the probabilities, this looks good. And so the interviewer asked Sam, you know, would you take that bet? And, And he said he would. And I think the obvious problem with this is you take that bet enough times, you were almost certainly wiping out humanity. Um, and it struck me as interesting because it, it's, I think, a, a real challenge for utilitarians that if you do want to make the world as good as possible, maybe you should be taking bets like that. How do you think about that? How should you think about risk if you're trying to do the most good you can? 
that answer is part of what I had in mind when I said that um, Bankman-Fried had a wildly excessive tolerance for risk. <laughs> um, but it's it's a paradox. I agree. I, I think it's called the St. Petersburg paradox because it was started by somebody in St. Petersburg in the 18th century, or so, a long time ago. Um, so I I don't claim to be able to answer it. There are some interesting discussions online um, that your your listeners can Google St. Petersburg paradox and they can get into um, the depths of that discussion. I don't have anything much to add to that, um, uh, except perhaps you know that. The, the full statement of the St. Petersburg Paradox assumes that you can infinitely increase well-being. I suppose you can if you think that um, you can infinitely increase the population of people who are enjoying well-being. And, of course, that requires more resources than our planet has. But no doubt there are many other planets in the universe that we could expand on. So, in theory, you could do that. But in our practical everyday decisions, of course, we can't do that. So um, at least when you're talking about repeating this bet that you have a 49% chance of losing several times, as you say, you're virtually certain to wipe out humanity and lose everything. And that's crazy. And how that reflects back on the initial bet is is another question. And I'm not going to be able to answer that one. Yeah. I mean, I think the the other sort of category of question I've had about utilitarianism Drives, I think, as much from Sam as from someone way, way before Sam, who's who you've written on quite a bit, who's the philosopher Henry Sidgwick, um, who was one of the great utilitarians of the the late nineteenth century, probably the great utilitarian of the late nineteenth century, and he sometimes sort of flirt with this idea that utilitarians should kind of have two moralities: that it might be true that trying to maximize the good is the true morality. But that's really hard and requires making really tough judgments about the world, about empirics. And so for practical purposes, most people shouldn't act like utilitarians. They should maybe act according to some rule of thumb that approximates the right thing to do, but might diverge from what they would do if they were trying to to just be good utilitarians all by themselves. And I'm split between thinking you know, there's something to that about Sam, that he clearly was not able to do utilitarianism uh, responsibly on his own. But whatever else he was, he was a really smart guy. And that makes me doubt whether I can do utilitarianism properly on my own. And at the same time, makes me worry about the idea that what the true morality is, is something that's that shouldn't be accessible to everyone, that's only sort of for an elite this is a big tangle of conversations, but I'm curious how you're you're thinking about the appropriateness of utilitarianism as an everyday morality has changed due to this, or, or if you've reflected on that question in light of, of what happened with Sam. Uh, yes, it, it has changed to some extent, although you know, I, I've been aware of these issues for a long time. Of course. After all, my professor at Oxford was R.M. Hare, uh, who developed this idea of of two-level morality, particularly in his book, Moral Thinking. The idea that there is an everyday level of morality at which we should essentially obey the, the moral rules that have generally been thought of as the right thing to do um, and that have evolved over centuries to work out what does have generally good consequences, if not in every instance, and that we should only move to what he called a critical level morality, uh, if we can be really confident that we're in a special situation where following the rule will have much worse consequences than breaking the rule, and we're not liable to distortions or particular um, emotions, biases that might lead us to think that we're entitled to break the rule when others are not. And I think that could well have been the problem with Bankman-Fried, that you know, he'd been so much praised as being a whiz kid. He'd been on the cover of Forbes. He was the richest person under 30 in the world. And maybe he thought that somehow that justified him in doing things that more ordinary mortals should not do, like using his client's funds to prop up a loss that had been made in Alameda, his uh, hedge fund. So it's it's reinforced the importance of that. Um, I think that we, sh- we should take that attitude to morality. And, uh, and I think that's right. And I think Sidgwick was right about that too, even though 
Some of the things you might think have been pilloried by, say, Bernard Williams, who refers to this as, as government has morality, like, you know, here's the white elite ruling the natives. Um, I don't think it has to be seen in those kinds of colonialist uh, terms at all. But uh, I do think it's it's wise counsel to say, yeah, follow the everyday rules, you know, don't misuse funds that have been entrusted to you for a different purpose, which is what Bankman-Fried has been indicted for doing. Um, I'm not saying... Uh, that he is guilty of that, but uh, uh, maybe. Um, and uh, we should be a lot more cautious um, in what we do when we depart from those rules. How does that affect how you think about your job as a popularizer of philosophy? You're an accomplished philosopher, but you're also, I think, probably the most accomplished popularizer of, of philosophical ethics. How do you think about those two levels when you're thinking about what ideas to popularize to a broad public in which which to be more cautious about. It is a problem because as a philosopher, um, you know, I do interviews, I'm doing one now in which I'm likely to be asked pointed questions and I don't want to give an answer to those questions that I don't believe in, right? I think that would be a bad thing for me to do because that's, you know, that's going to be harmful to, in general, people say, hey, you know, Singer says this, but he can't possibly consistently believe that because he also says this and that. I think I've got to show that it's possible to think rationally and clearly. And so I have to be careful in my popularization, but I don't want to be careful to the point of saying things that I believe to be false. Um, and, and that's a difficult line to tread, I, I know. Peter Singer, thank you so much for joining us in the gray area. Thank you very much, Dylan. It's been great being with you. Eric Janikis is our producer. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. Thanks very much to Peter Singer for doing this. As I said at the top of the episode, he's someone who's influenced my life for over 20 years now, which is a statement of how important he's been to a lot of people. If you want to hear more from him, he's on a world tour right now. For tickets and more info on these events, check out petersinger.info. Let us know what you think of this episode. Drop us a line at thegrayarea@vox.com. And if you appreciated this episode or you have your own middle school frenemy you're trying to piss off, share the Spotify link with your friends on social media. I'm Dylan Matthews, and I write for Vox about ways to make the world a better place. The show is off on Monday for Memorial Day, but Sean Illing will be back next Thursday with an all-new episode of The Gray Area. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on mom? No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower.